Good morning. I'm glad you're here. Good to see you. Dismiss Children's Church. Okay. Bye. <laughs> Our younger children may be dismissed to Children's Church at this time. As they're going out, it's, uh, it's good. We had a great men's retreat this weekend. We had 29 guys on top of this windy, frozen hill in Pennsylvania. And uh, I haven't quite forgiven Mark yet for making me go on this like really long walk through these farm fields, and I froze, and the wind was in my face. And we had about halfway, and I was like, why am I doing this? But... I'll forgive them before we get to communion. So, and the, uh, but it was it was a good time. Really tired. So, like if I fall asleep in the middle of the sermon or something, just you know, Mike, you're closest. Just kind of nudge me or something, and I'll wake up. The. Uh, We did have a uh, a great time, and uh, I think God worked in a lot of people's uh, lives, uh, we hope, and uh, we will see the fruit of it over time, so it was good. We are in John chapter 6 today, the... Uh, starting at verse 22, going through verse 40, along passage, and please read along with me. You can open your Bibles. There is no sermon outline today, one of the casualties of the retreat. I was thankful I got the sermon done. Um, So you'll have to actually uh, open your Bibles and follow along. John chapter 6, starting at verse 22. On the next day, The crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus." When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would uh, wake some of us up, that you would give us minds to understand and ears to hear and eyes to see, that your word might speak powerfully to us this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The um, was came across this fascinating article recently in Relevant Magazine. I don't know how many of you uh, get Relevant. It's sort of this uh, cutting. Yeah, somebody besides Dave Dorst. Um, it gets Relevant Magazine. It's this twenty-something uh, kind of uh, you know Gen X version of Christianity today, I guess. Um, and uh, quick comment about uh, Dave. We were at the retreat, and uh, he was talking about having to deal with a bad boss. And so as a positive example, he used Dave. You know, how do you deal with a bad boss? So you talk to him. He'll tell you how to do that. The, uh, but I read this article. It's about a co- written by a college student about waiting tables. And he was a waiter to make money for school, as uh, many many college students have done over the years. And uh, I wanted to share it with you because, sadly, it has the ring of truth to it. And the article was called "The Dreaded Christian Table." He writes Sunday night at a restaurant in a small southern town formula that equates to a post-apocalyptic battle zone. Welcome to the Thunderdome. Things may look busy enough on the dining room floor, but in the kitchen it's nothing less than Normandy. And in my case, there's a rising casualty rate. Fridays and Saturdays are just as busy as any Sunday night. However, there's an intriguing dynamic that comes into play on Sunday. That dynamic is the Christian table. I don't know why, but being a waiter has always been appealing to me. It seemed like the perfect job for any financially strapped college student, and that's the situation I happened to find myself in. I had friends who told me how difficult it was dealing with rude and demanding people. I'd also heard from countless others that the, quote, church crowd is hands down the worst group of people to wait on. I never believed them, mostly because I was always part of the church crowd. Unfortunately, I've come to find out how right they are. The only reason I got this group of Sunday night regulars in the first place was because I owed the girl who had that particular section a favor, and 
being the new guy taking this table was like an initiation into the crew of waiters. I gladly took it on, thinking to myself, these people are just like me, people who follow Christ. It will be an honor for me to serve them. One guy at the table had a little pocket Bible, probably the New Testament, and he would pull it out from time to time and make sure that I saw it. I don't know why, because after 10 minutes, he and the rest of the crew had blown any chance to tell me anything about God, although he must have thought I needed to hear it. After all, anyone who works on Sunday night can't be a real Christian, right? I ran around for the better part of an hour, getting them dozens of teas, getting their kids another egg and wiping up whatever they'd spilled their drinks because their parents were too into whatever it was they were talking about. They all split their checks, but they didn't sit in any kind of order. They were scattered about and expected me to know without asking who was together and who was separate. On top of this, they were rude and acted as though I was an annoyance to them unless they needed something, and they didn't even leave 10%. For a person who lives off the income from tips, that hurt. Normally, I'd be pretty angry if a 10-person group stiffed me like that, but not angry enough to write an article about it. However, on this occasion, due to the interesting circumstances, I feel it's necessary. Here's why. When the other servers got the word that I had the church table, they all immediately patted me on the back and told me everything would be all right. My non-Christian co-workers automatically volunteered to help me out because they knew what was coming. They told me I might as well not waste my time by trying hard at this table because they were going to be rude and leave me next to nothing. The entire staff at the restaurant, including the manager on duty, had nothing but contempt for this group of people, the church people, because time and time again they come in and treat the staff like second-class citizens. I wonder what their pastor spoke on that day. It obviously wasn't humility, patience, generosity, love, kindness, gentleness, forgiveness, or anything like what Jesus spoke on while he was on earth. Maybe it was how to balance their finances or 10 steps to a happy life. I had an up-close and extremely personal view that night of how many people see American Christians. I hate to admit my coworkers were right when they told me the church table would be one of the most frustrating things I would ever encounter at my job. And because of the way my colleagues have been treated Sunday after Sunday, their hearts have been hardened to the message of Christ. I'm fortunate I came to the truth earlier in my life and have the realization that not all who call themselves Christians actually follow the principles of Christ or, for that matter, have any clue whatsoever what those principles are. So now every Sunday I witness the painful spiritual deaths of my friends because those who are supposed to be saved Treat them worse than those who've never even heard the message of Christ. If we don't begin to love those whose job it is to serve, the casualty rate on the front lines of the American church will continue to grow. True story. And I read that and I thought, wow, that's a damning article. And sadly, I think it's way too true, way too common, and way too stupid. I thought, how would Jesus deal with these people? What would Jesus say to them if he was the waiter on duty that night? You know, there comes a point that when people challenge Jesus for selfish reasons, and when we read that in the Gospels, he challenges them right back. That's exactly what happens in today's passage in John 6. 
This text takes place immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. And the crowd is following Jesus in hopes of getting fed again. People have certain expectations of Jesus, certain demands of Jesus. And when he's not doing things the way they want him to, they begin to question him. And they discover that questioning the Christ is not as easy as they think, as simple as it looks, or as convenient as, it, as they might want. Jesus is giving the crowd answers they don't expect. And the crowd's listening to him, and they're slowly realizing they're not getting straight and simple A, B, and C type of answers. But rather, Jesus is providing answers which make them think. Answers which challenge them to examine themselves. Answers which force them to make some tough decisions. So let's see what he says. First question the crowd asked Jesus uh, is, when did you come here? Verses 22 through 27. When did you come here? Now, do you really think that's what they wanted to know? I think they're more interested in asking Jesus, why'd you leave us? Where'd you go with all the food? And Jesus sees right through them. Notice he does two things. First, he tells the crowd that what he's about to say is the truth. He's not holding anything back. He's not going to pull any punches. He starts in verse 26 by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you. That's a message. That's a neon signboard that says, Sit down, hang on, because what I'm about to say is really important. And then second, he doesn't answer the question they asked. But instead, he questions their motives. Verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus is telling them, hey, you, you really don't care when I got here. What you're really interested in is getting more food. They're not following after Jesus because of his teaching. And surprisingly enough, they're not following after Jesus because of his miracles. That's unimportant to them. They're following after Jesus, not because their hearts were touched, but because their bellies were full. It's the first century church table. Now, faith that rests on teaching alone isn't the highest kind of faith. And neither is the faith that depends on miracles the highest kind of faith. But both are better than this false kind of faith that comes to Jesus on the basis of a good meal. Imagine if somebody came to you and said, you know, that was such a great Thanksgiving dinner, I guess I'll believe. You probably think something like, you know, you're not putting your faith in very much, are you? What happens next year if we don't have any Thanksgiving dinner at all? What then? Well, it's not likely that that particular person will be hanging around. They're going to be off looking for another great meal. Augustine, one of the greatest theologians of the early church, said in words that still ring true today, Jesus is seldom sought for the sake of Jesus. Jesus is seldom sought for the sake of Jesus. See, anytime anyone puts their faith in anything less than the person of Christ, it's only a matter of time till they're disappointed, and that faith crumbles. The Lord Jesus, we have to remember, is still the same. He never changes. He's enduring from everlasting to everlasting. He still reads the hearts of men. He still looks at our secret motives. He knows exactly what we do and exactly why we do what we do. 
and he knows our reasons for giving, and he knows our reasons for coming to church, and he knows our reasons for praying, and he knows our reasons for being nice to each other, just as he knew here in John 6, the crowd was following after bread, not Christ. First Samuel 16, 7 says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then Jesus follows up in verse 27. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. The food that endures to eternal life, given to us by Christ himself. The Apostle John regularly associates Christ with life. And notice he says this life is a gift. It's given to us by Christ. It's not a reward for our work. It's not something we earn by our own efforts. When Jesus says to work for this food, he's directing us towards himself. He's directing our energy and our efforts away from worldly, materialistic things and towards those eternal, spiritual things which can only be found by having a relationship with him. And Jesus is telling the crowd to stop yearning after things like bread, as if things or food will be, ever be able to fill the void in your heart. And there's a sharp unveiling of the crowd's unworthy motives in seeking Jesus. But is it not true that those same motives operate in our own lives? Even at the times we think we're being the most spiritual? Let me outline what I mean. First, the, the crowd's obviously seeking Jesus in one sense, but at the same time, it's obvious that the minds of the people were on themselves. We see clearly in the matter of the food, which Jesus mentions. Remember, the crowd had been uh, hungry when they were with Jesus the night before, and he had fed them, and it was an amazing thing. And he fed them, and the text said, so that they had all they wanted. And the 12 baskets of leftovers were evidence of the fact they'd been fully satisfied. Still, the night had gone by, and now part of the morning, then it's time for, you know, brunch, a late breakfast, early lunch, and they're hungry again. And so their minds are obviously primarily on their stomachs as they begin to seek Jesus again. And how many of us do the same thing? We lose the balance between the physical and the spiritual. And we're hungering after things. We labor, we work night and day for the food that perishes. Do you do that when you seek Jesus? Do you come to him with your mind filled not so much with Jesus and his all-surpassing worth, but with your needs or what you imagine your needs to be? And I'm convinced that in our day and age, in American Christianity, there's a lamentable tendency to focus on our needs rather than on God. And I'm equally convinced this is the worst possible way to actually have those needs met and to grow as a Christian. And what is so wrong is it becomes so easy to focus on our needs that we begin focusing on ourselves rather than on Jesus. Instead, we need to render to God the work of faith, faith not in things but in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is using this challenge to the crowd to challenge them to come to him. He's telling them and us to come to Christ, come to him who is our real food, come to Christ who's our spiritual nourishment. But the crowd isn't getting it. They don't realize that Christ is the answer. They think he merely has the answer. 
So they ask another question. Second question, verse 28. What must we do? Pick up the story there. It says, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Well, right off the bat, they've clearly missed the point about eternal life being a free gift from him. They want to know what must we do. Do you understand here? What we have is a parable in action. A parable in action. All of John 6 is a parable of Christ being acted out. And at the end of many of Jesus' parables, he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, it becomes clear in this story, the crowd, while they're listening to him, they're not hearing what he's saying. And how often in our own lives we have selective hearing. We look like we're listening, but we're only hearing what we want to hear. And the crowd misses the point the first time, so now they're asking, what must we do? And again, Jesus doesn't directly answer their question. He doesn't say, well, go and do such and such. He gives them an answer which challenges them to look at themselves. He puts them on the spot where they're going to have to make a decision. He tells them it's not their works, but God's work. And once again, he's letting them know it's not a matter of their effort. It's not a matter of the works of their hands, but rather the work of their heart. He tells them in a very straightforward matter what's uh, manner, what's really necessary. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. That's what's necessary, that you believe. So the crowd's looking for a shopping list of good deeds. They're still thinking in terms of doing, and Jesus tells them it's not a matter of doing, but of trusting. And the word used here, believe, is what we refer to as a present continuous. It means that believing is not a once and it's over with type of thing, but believing is a start now and continue forever type of thing. Jesus not, is not talking about an act of faith, but a life of faith. Stories told of the great missionary John Patton, and uh, he was making a translation of the scriptures into the language that was spoken in the country where he's a missionary. And he searched long and hard for the word for faith, for believe. And the people didn't have any word for believe, and he didn't know what to do, and he was very frustrated. So one day he's working on his translation, and one of the, the men uh, enters his room, and he's very tired. He's been working all day. Just sort of flings himself down on a chair, puts his feet up on another chair, and remarks how good it is to lean his whole weight on the chair. And Dr. Patton noted the word he used for lean his whole weight. He had his word for believe. To lean your whole weight on Jesus. See, the work of faith is not a blind work. It's not a belief for the sake of having a belief. It's not faith in faith. That's what cults do. That's what the New Age groups do. That's what the Unitarian Universalists do. They don't believe in anything specific. They don't believe in any person but themselves. But to believe in nothing is to believe in anything. And once you've lost the standards of knowing in whom you believe and knowing what you believe and knowing why you believe, then you open yourself up to, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Instead, we're to receive the gift of faith as a gift of God. 
Verse 29, again, Jesus answered him, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent, that if you believe in him, God the Son, whom he, God the Father, has sent. See, God has chosen to work out our salvation in the life, death, and resurrection of his Son, and there is no other way. And if we're to have eternal life, we have to put our trust, our faith, our belief in the Son. And it's clear from this passage that Jesus was sent here by God. He was on a mission. And both God the Father and God the Son are intensely interested in bringing eternal life to sinners. It's not possible to separate them. We can't believe in God the Father and not believe in the one he has sent, Jesus Christ, God the Son. But the crowd's still not getting it. They're struggling with understanding that Jesus is the Son. So they ask the third question, verse 30, what work do you perform? And here again, the crowd asks a question. Jesus gives them not an answer, but the truth. And once again, remember, we're seeing a parable in action. We've already heard that the crowd listened but didn't hear. Now we're reading that they looked but didn't see. Verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? They asked Jesus for a sign, for a miracle. And at the beginning of this chapter, there was the feeding of the 5,000. These are the same people. And they have the audacity to ask Jesus to give them a miracle when they just finished witnessing the day before the most miraculous thing they've ever seen in their whole lives. Jesus fed thousands of people with five loaves and two fish. And they're demanding a miracle when one had just been given to them. That boggles my mind. That tells me they're so busy eating the bread, they failed to see how the bread was given. See, they want God to act according to their terms. They'd set the conditions, expect God to follow their will, not the other way around. They're setting human limitations on what they thought God could do and on what they wanted God to do. Truth be told, we're guilty of doing the same thing. We lay out the plans, the terms, the conditions, and say, okay, God, do your thing. And we're surprised that God gives us answers we don't expect. And we all need to learn, just as this crowd needed to learn, that God acts according to his sovereign plan, not our faulty plans. And God follows his holy will, not our selfish wills. We have to learn from the crowd, not make that mistake. We need not tell God that we need to see and believe. They wouldn't believe until they saw the signs, even though they just had the sign. Because God's likely to answer us, believe that you may see. So instead of answering the question of what he will do, Jesus corrects their assumptions. He tells them, it wasn't Moses who gave you bread. It was a gift of God. And the gift of bread is not only something that happened in the past, it's a, a gift that's still being given in the present. And what you had gotten in the past wasn't even the true bread, it was perishable. What's available now is the true bread. It's like they're asking for wonder bread. And Jesus says, what I have for you is the bread of wonder. And then he does something that really grabs their attention. He lets them know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the true bread is not something, but someone. The bread they received merely provided nourishment. The bread Jesus was offering was himself, and he provides life. 
earlier, back in John 5, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. The people still don't get it. They're missing the spiritual point of all that Jesus is saying. They're still fixated on the material. And so now they make a demand of him. They say, give us this bread always. Instead of giving in to their demand, Jesus makes a declaration, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the first of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. This is the real shocker for the crowd. They're still looking at things from a human perspective. They're still thinking about this special gift as a thing. And Jesus is verbally grabbing them by the shoulders and saying, it's not a thing. It's a person. And not only is it a person, it's a divine person, a person who's come down from heaven. And that divine person who's come down from heaven is me, Jesus. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is grabbing people and telling them, you want bread I am the bread of life. You want life? I am the life. You want light? I am the light of the world. You want a shepherd? I am the good shepherd, and I'm the gate the shepherd passes through. You want a resurrection? I am the resurrection and the life. You want to know the way? You want to know the truth? I am the way, the truth, and the life. You want a vine? I am the true vine. I am, I am, I am. All the way back to Exodus 3 and 6, we learn that I am was a personal name for God, a name so holy that the Jews refused to say it or write it out of fear they'd be struck dead. And Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, stands before this disbelieving crowd and literally thunders, I am the bread of life. And he challenges them. Verse verse 35, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's challenging them to come and believe. What does it mean to come and believe? It's that event when people realizing their sin, understanding they're powerless to save themselves, hear of Christ, listen to Christ, trust in Christ, grab hold of Christ, and lean all their weight on Christ for salvation. It's nothing less than the good news of new life. In Jesus Christ. And those were hard words for the crowd. And it had a dramatic effect on them. Back in verse 15, which we saw uh, two weeks ago, we saw they were ready to make Jesus their king. By verse 25, they'd let go of that and were calling him rabbi. Rabbi is still a respected title, but it's not quite a king. By verse 34, they'd given up on rabbi, and now they're down to the polite sir. You see, the challenges of Christ are hard, so they're letting go. They wanted to be the church table, full of selfish demands, and Jesus wanted them to focus on him, not themselves. Jesus called for them to be the waiter, serving and not demanding. That article on the dreaded Christian table really bothered me because I knew it was all too true. I could see it. I have seen it. 
But then I read another article, and this one gives me hope because in some ways it's the flip side. It's about astonishing generosity. Todd uh, Bolsinger is a pastor and author. He's written a couple of books, uh, Showtime, Living Down Hypocrisy by Living Out the Faith, and uh, It Takes a Church to Raise a Christian, How the Community of God Transforms Lives. I haven't read either of them, but he's generally a pretty good writer. And he has a, a, a blog, a web blog, and uh, he wrote an article on it. And he says, uh, while reading through a wonderful thick tome on the ministry of Jesus by N.T. Wright, I stumbled across two words that were used to describe a key characteristic that Jesus expects of his followers, astonishing generosity. I like that phrase. I rolled it around in my brain, but I found myself disturbed by it. It seemed almost impossible. The quote's a reference to Matthew 5 when Jesus tells his followers to turn the other cheek when struck, give their cloak when asked for a coat, and carry a load an extra mile when a person makes you haul something. And he's saying, in effect, that even when people use you or take advantage of you, they uh, should, in the words of uh, Bishop Wright, be met with astonishing generosity. It says, through the next days, the word astonishing stayed with me. It's not enough to be generous, Jesus was saying. Our generosity must astonish the people around them, around us, leaving them dumbfounded for an explanation, flabbergasted for a rationale. It's not enough to be good to the people who are good to us. If we're going to be his followers. Our generosity must flow to the very people who we don't want to be generous to. At the same time, I was intrigued and challenged by the phrase, began to noodle on it some more. Why? Why does Jesus ask this? There's a long-standing principle of tithing, giving, of being charitable, helping people in need. Of course, the people of God should give. But why generously, and why should that generosity be astonishing? Well, reading in uh, that book, Jesus and the Victory of God by N.T. Wright, came upon the answer. In a section of how many religious leaders of his day thought the only way the world would change would be through violent revolution, uh, he writes, Jesus summoned his hearers to the real revolution, which would come about through his people reflecting the generous love of God into the whole world. And that's it. It's not just a strategy for adding some kindness. It's a strategy for changing the world. It's not about making the world better. It's about making the world new. Generosity is not just about uh, making people think that we're good and nice and kind but helping people see that God is good and compassionate and responsive to their cries. It's a central activity of the followers of Christ to reveal God to the world. Our generosity is to remind people of God's generosity. Our generous forgiveness of those who fail us, giving to those in need of open-handedness to those who are so uh, clinging so hard to the scraps of life. Welcome to those who are without a place in this world. Be nothing more and nothing less than a reflection of the generous love of God to the whole world. How abundantly, astoundingly, astonishing, generously God is. And he demonstrated that at the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus is telling us today that that should lead us to believing, that it should lead us to a life of faith, 
What would it mean to be lavishly generous, astonishingly generous people? Astonishing generosity. What would have to happen in your life for those two words to describe you? Think about that. We need to pray.